Spring of Life Fellowship and the vision of changing the world invites you to listen to a message of restoration and strengthening for your life. Let's listen to our guest. But that's your seed, your word, watered by your spirit, might penetrate today and bear fruit to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I needed that prayer. I like to begin at the beginning because that's where all things start, which is in the garden. The original creation was a garden. It was beautiful. It was perfect, unspotted by any sin. And in that garden, something very precious occurs, and it's that God creates the first Man trains them, equips them, grows them up to understand the creation that he has prepared for him, equips him for dominion, to be able to exercise lordship, authority, and to make use of every element of that creation for God's purposes, which is God's glory. And there we see this very intimate scene. I'm speaking of Genesis uh, chapter 2. How solicitously God trains his son, the first man, Adam. And verse 15, after shaping the man with his own hands, fashioning him out of the ingredients with which he made the world and all things in it. And he breathes into him something of himself, life, that of God in each human being that is born. Diana, my wife and I, uh, celebrated the birth of our 12th grandchild Saturday. So it's very present to me. I have 12 little human beings from age 10 down. And there is a little of me in each of them. And there is a little of God in each of us. The breath of life. When Billy came out, he was, had trouble breathing. So he had to spend a few days in the hospital, aided with extra Oxygen. Now he's home, thank God. But this breath we draw reminds us, every breath we draw reminds us of the first breath. The first breath was the breath of life with, much, with capital letters. Life in abundance, the life of God in man. And so the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden a garden he had especially planted and prepared for man. What a solicitous father's heart we see at work here. And then he gives him the rules. Because without the rules, there is no love. Without the rules, there is no liberty. Without the rules, there is no life. And so, the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree in the garden, 
you may freely eat the gift, not just of fruit to eat, freedom to be exercised responsibly. Freedom must have rules. And so, the first law of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. It's not good for you. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now you know the story. We're going to get to that. But before the story continues, God lets us know what is in his mind. And in the next verse, verse 18 of chapter 2 in Genesis, it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And so the Lord begins a new creation. And now instead of using the dust of the ground to fashion the shape and the form of man, he takes from the ground of man's own flesh, from the body of man, he takes a piece and being God and able to do all things. I don't know what scientists are going to do now that they can take a cell and turn it into a nose or an ear or a heart valve. They are discovering things they did not know were possible. But now we're beginning to know it is possible. It becomes a little less absurd to the scientific, rigorous, prideful mind to understand how out of a rib you might make a man. <laughs> he did. And there it is. Uh, but before he took the rib, he does something very curious. I don't know about your Bible. But the next verse is not about creating the woman out of a rib of man. No. It's about creating every beast of the field and every bird of the air. And we see this marvelous, intimate encountering which God equips his son to understand what is this creature he has brought him. And the final exam in each of his lessons is to name it. Because in Hebrew the names denote a main quality of the entity named. So we can picture Adam observing this creature. And of course, I don't think that the Lord began with a very complex one, you know, uh, like a monkey. I think he probably began with an amoeba, a unicellular being. Because the laws of learning are the same. They haven't changed from that day until today. We go from a simple to the complex. You must first understand the simplex before you can understand that which is complex. And you go from what is already known to what is yet unknown. That's how learning occurs. Every one of my grandchildren is demonstrating that, but we as adults do the same. And so he carefully creates, reviews his uh, animal creation, I believe one by one, in order to uh, 
trained his son Adam to be able to exercise dominion over his creation. And of course, as the animals get more complex, I believe, Adam understood the systems, the digestive system, the respiratory system, the nervous system, the skeletal system, and the reproductive system. Because in fact, in Genesis chapter 1, three times we see that things reproduce after their kind. Well, Adam was not stupid. He was the son of God. Not a God son of God, the human son of God. And created by him. And so, there must have come a time in which Adam, seeing all these animals and seeing how they reproduced in pairs, he realized something was missing. Now God knew it was missing from the beginning. He says, I'll make him a helper. But the one who didn't know was Adam. So he realizes, Father and me, how am I going to be fruitful and multiply? No help. It says this uh, very uh, uh, verse 20 says, but for Adam there was not found a helper, helper comparable to him. He realized it. The light bulb went off. And now he was ready. Now that he knew his need, now that he knew what was missing, now that marvelous creation of Eve occurs. And of course, God introduces what a solemn, what a beautiful, what a dramatic moment in history when God himself introduces the first woman to the first man. And the phrase there on verse uh, 23 is Adam's recognition of what he has in front of him. Before, he saw animals. Uh, he saw cattle. He saw birds. And named them. But now, he says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And then comes that very solemn law, the ordainment of marriage, the first marriage of history occurs right here in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He shall leave that which is most cherished, that which gave him life, that upon which he has depended all his childhood and all his growing up years. He shall leave his models, that taught him how to live, he shall leave all that behind to undertake this sacred new call of husband, of one wife, and unite with that other strange, inexplicable, different human being, a woman. And the two of them shall unite and become 
one flesh. Jesus, when quoting this passage, adds to it and he says, no longer shall they be two, but one flesh. Therefore, says Jesus, what God has joined together, let not men pull asunder. It is necessary in our time, especially when the family is under such attack, when God's creation and creation order is so derided and so despised and so abandoned so easily by so many, that we should hold firmly to God's purpose, to God's order, to God's plan. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And then a marvelous verse 25, the last verse of chapter 2. They were both naked, the man and his wife. How delightful. And they were not ashamed. There was no reason to be ashamed. They had been created by God for each other and brought together by God to be one, to be united, to become one flesh. No shame. Satan has been selling the lie almost since that very day that sex is dirty. And our culture has bought that lie. Hook, line, and sinker. As we say here. But sex is God's idea. Sex is God's creation for marriage is the fulcrum of marriage. It is holy, not dirty. We must redeem God's idea of sex. And we must live the redeemed divine idea of sex. How? The same way they were to do it. By living under the covenant, by living under God's order by accepting over ourselves the blessing of the covenant because the covenant is full of blessing and those who follow it enjoy their rewards. And those who break it, those who ignore it, those who turn their back on it suffer the consequences of that. And that's why all those homes and all those office buildings are filled with unhappy people. Because they have disregarded and ignored God's covenant, God's order, God's purpose for their lives. Wouldn't one wish that this story ended here? But, as you well know, God had a plan. And part of that plan was that his love would be demonstrated in his mercy. Because love must be free. If, God, if love is compelled, it is no longer love. So he did not create man to compel man to love him back. But he had to give him freedom. 
the freedom to obey or to disobey. And of course, the consequences of disobeying God are tragic and they're well illustrated in the next chapter, of which I'm only going to read one part of one verse, because I think it has relevance for us. And I pray, I really pray to God, that each of you who hear me today, this morning, that the Lord surprisingly brought into contact with this message this morning, unexpectedly to you and to me, that you may profit from what God wants to say to you. You know the story. The serpent shows up, engages the woman in dialogue, and deceives her. Deceives her into disobeying the order from God that she heard from Adam, who received it first. So she contemplates the possibility of taking from the fruit to be like God and know all things, the difference between good and evil. So she transgresses, takes, eats, and gives to her husband, and he eats. At that point, all of nature is changed. And part two of God's plan begins. God begins to explain to them the consequences of what they have done. Questions Adam, beautiful passage, should be frequently read. And then he confronts the woman and announces to the first woman the consequences of their sin. And so in verse 16, he announces to her the tragic consequences of painful childbirth. I've attended the four births of my four children with my wife. I know what that is. And then he tells her the effects of sin on marriage. Let me repeat that. The effects of sin upon marriage. Verse 16, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, you know, when I first got converted and started reading this, I could not understand this. I would ask myself, how come my wife doesn't run around chasing me, desiring me? <laughs> it was not the way. It was perhaps more like the opposite. Uh, but as I grew in the faith and humility and asked more experts than me to interpret the word, uh, an old theologian who translated perhaps this version of the Bible, one of those, a senior uh, man in such things, says, well, you cannot understand those words as translated unless you read them, same words, in Genesis chapter 4. And verse 7, because exactly the same words are used there in the original. And uh, there God says to Cain, their first son, who's being tempted to violence. And he says, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you. So it's not erotic desire at all. 
we're talking about. It says, and, but you must rule over it. Same set of words. Desire, rule. And so, when God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, has nothing to do with sex. It has to do with the desire to control him. Its desire is for you. What does sin want to do with Cain? Wants to overpower him, to make him fall, to control him. Well, that's exactly what God says the effect of sin on their marriage and on our marriage is. In our nature, our fallen, sinful, Adamic, and Evic nature, as children of Adam and Eve, our natural instinct is to downgrade the other one into an object to use them. The man, in a very obvious, uh, inelegant, sometimes brutal way, to make use of a woman to serve him, to meet his needs, his pleasures, his service. That is the natural state of fallen man's heart. And the woman, in a different way, with a different set of instruments, she too wants to make use of him to make her happy. She wants to make him the way she likes him to be. Now, this is not ill-intentioned. This is why it's so difficult to see and to perceive how Genesis 3.16 is fulfilled in our lives. Because it's disguised, even from ourselves. The young woman falls in love. She loves him. She can see he's got some imperfections. But she says to herself, I will change him. My love will change him. In other words, I have the, something in me, the power to make him the way I like him to be. Which she thinks is best for him, is the better. She's going to make him a better man. That's her project. You see, that, that's how it starts. And of course, she can't. Because God has not given any human the ability to change another, only ourselves. But we can shape them. And that is what happens with little children, with all of us as little children. Some wonderful, blessed, well-intentioned woman shaped us. She uh, cuddled us. She tended to our every need. She learned to read us and divinate what we need. What would be the next need? She worked hard at preparing to please us and to uh, keep us happy, keep us from crying at least on those uh, first stages of life that my daughter is going through again with her second now. Uh, she makes a study of each of us. And she invests all she is and all she has and all she can do in order to tend to us. It's very tender. It's very moving. It is beautiful. It is love. But there is that 
Adamic nature in us. And so little by little, the, t the sinful tendency in mothers is to establish a unique bond and relationship between her and her children that turns into codependency as the psychologists name it. It tends into a transactional love relationship where the child's desire is to make mommy happy. But mommy is unhappy because of other reasons that the child cannot solve. And no child will ever be able to fill the void of an unhappy mother's heart. Because God ordained it that uh, a man should make his wife happy, 1 Corinthians 7, and a woman should make the man happy. It's a marriage business, not a generational business. And so this control, this sinful tendency to control begins to take over. Matriarchy, what we call matriarchy in sociology, begins to occur where she begins to rule over the heart of her children, displacing, in many cases, especially in our culture, the position of her husband, attracting all the loyalty and all the bonding towards her, and establishing an unequal and unjust and corrupt pattern, bringing up her men-children, her sons, as princes, and her daughters as servants to future princes. So in our culture, traditionally, the boys play and the girls work from childhood, a differential upbringing for differential expectation of roles. And so she brings up future little tyrants, <laughs> spoiled, used to being served, they are the center, they are it, we are it, I should say. I was certainly one of those. And uh, we adore our mothers. There is no figure on this earth greater than our mother. But we mistreat and ignore and use our wives, our women. And often our mother is part of that mistreatment because hmm, there is no woman that deserves my son. No woman that can measure up to this valuable male human being of mine. And so many, many, many marriages suffer. You know it. The tension, the unhappiness. The poor young woman, she has to work for a decade maybe or more to win her husband's heart because her mother-in-law has his heart <laughs> in a way that is inextricable because doesn't matter what we read here. Even we Christians, in Latin America at least, I assure you, nobody leaves father and mother. <laughs> you leave your father. 
But you can't leave your mother. You were brought up to never leave her. You were brought up to make her happy, to take care of her in her old age. She's the queen of your life. You're already, your heart is given to your mother in a very special place that no woman will ever occupy. And our culture reinforces that through this dramatic thing I have uh, described to you. Now look at the effects of this uh, breaking of God's order. It, see, if the devil can get you to confront and violate God's law, he will make something else more important so you will still disobey it but not even realize it. You will obey your culture, the dictates of our culture. You will be discipled by the world instead of being discipled by the word of God. And isn't that a reality to so many of us? Which of us does not know, perhaps even have experienced some of these toxic patterns? What is the toxic pattern of machismo? Prepotence. The unauthorized use of power. The abuse of authority. Because men does have an authority from God. But not to abuse his wife. Not to use her. Not to serve himself of another human being. Not to lord it over as though thinking that he's more important and others are secondary. That's not the reason. That's not the purpose for which God has given men, man, his, el hombre, his authority. No. As we will see next, there is a whole other, complete opposite purpose for the authority that God has given us. But machismo represents the injustice that some people are more important than other people. Specifically, that universally, then more specifically that men are more important than women as a class. Half of humanity more important than the other half. That's the lie that the enemy has sown to bring misery to all of mankind from the fall to this day. And this is the lie that unconsciously we carry in our genes. We bring it genetically, we bring it spiritually, and we bring it culturally because of our bringing a lie super reinforced by our culture I discovered begun to glimpse this lie when I was a student in the Sorbonne in France uh, and I was poor like so many foreign students so we would hire ourselves to serve as uh, la claque the clock is a place and also the people who sit in it, the last row in the theater, in the uh, National uh, Theater of Paris, uh, but in every theater, the last row is reserved for people that are hired to laugh and to applaud on cue. Because, <laughs> of course, the National Theater only plays the classical French place of Moliere and Racine and nobody understands them, not only us foreigners, the French couldn't understand them either because uh, it's a very archaic, you know, French evolved very quickly as a language so it's incomprehensible in the original and they perform them in the original uh, language and style so they needed people to tell them 
what was going on a little bit. So there was a lady at, in the front row, that, and we got paid five francs, which was a good meal at the un university restaurants of Paris. Um, and so at her cue, we would all, ah, ha, 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 or ah, applaud, of course, so all the public would follow suit. Uh, that's an institution in France. But I noticed that in every play of Moliere, every time a Spaniard or an Italian showed on stage, just because he showed up before he said or did anything, we had to laugh. We were the laughing stock of the French. Now, this is back several centuries, of course. Why? Because he thought he was such a macho man, he was a ladies' man, the actor would be represented in this way. And so I started to think that the very things I had learned that defined me to be a man in my upbringing were the things the French were laughing at back in the 18th century. And so, uh, I began to suspect that something was wrong. And then, of course, after I received Christ and began to read the Word, uh, many other things told me that I was wrong, especially my wife. Uh, <laughs> my teacher, she uh, is an American. I married a girl from New Jersey with German uh, and Dutch background. So, you know, she, uh, she knew how to uh, behave herself. And she was, of course, out to fix me. And there was much to fix, for sure. Now, matriarchy. What does matriarchy represent? I've depicted for you abuse of power, uh, prepotence, uh, abuse of authority, inequality among human beings, superiority of one class over another. That's what machismo teaches you. Modeling. It doesn't say it in words, of course, but it's what it models. What does matriarchy model? Well, matriarchy says that you can control a person through love, through your affections, through uh, mimos, spoiling, cuddling a person. You can shape another human being to your pleasure. The power to shape another and make them do and be the way you want to. That's what, that's what matriarchy teaches. It's a selfish use of affection. Just like machismo is the selfish use of power and authority for my purposes. To meet needs, just like you said, Pastor, because she, there is a void in the family, there is no authority in the family. There is no head. And so she steps in because somebody has to bring the order and make the decisions. But in the process, because she's a sinner, daughter of Eve, just like we men are daughters of, sons of Adam, uh, sin in her will tend to corrupt. Now, not every affection of mothers is matriarchal in nature. But it is the sin that women, you sisters, need to guard against because it's what God said. The effect of sin will be on marriage. You are going to try to control them. He will lord it over you. He will 
rule over you. That's, this is what, just like thorns and thistles will grow out of the ground, these are the thorns and thistles of marriage. Machismo and matriarchy. Now, the story doesn't end there. Because, thank God, Jesus redeems. Hallelujah. And the Apostle Paul, a great teacher, wrote a third of the New Testament uh, explaining, unpacking the teachings of Christ. He gives us a marvelous teaching. I'm going to start on chapter 5, then I'm going to jump back to chapter 4. Because on chapter 5 of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, we have this wonderful passage from verse 21 to verse uh, 32 through the end of the chapter. Um, in which the passage begins as do other sections in the New Testament in which the the specific roles of the specific offices or roles are outlined. Every one of those passages begins with a, with a concept that is overarching. And this one says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. It's the end of a long uh, paragraph, which continues in the next uh, set of verses. And... Submission, a dirty word in today's culture, is always for the Lord's sake. We submit to God. And for the sake of God, we submit to those authorities, human authorities that he has placed over us. We submit to our parents. We submit to one another in marriage and the wives particularly to their husbands in the way that God ordains it. We submit to the church authorities and we submit to the civil authorities. Also in the marketplace, subordinates, employees submit to their bosses uh, and so forth. Submission is God's order represented on earth. How do we know we are in order with God? Because we are in submission. And in submission to human authorities, imperfect authorities, necessarily, all children of Adam and Eve, there is no authority on earth that is not imperfect because of sin. But we're not submitting to the worthiness of this one person. We're submitting to God out of love for him. It's our response, our loving response to him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's how we prove love, by obedience. So, we submit to those imperfect authorities because God is not imperfect and he is the one that rewards our submission. Yes. And our submission is the act of a free person. It's never compelled. It may never be compelled because love must be freely given. If it is not freely given, it is not love. It's something else. Same with submission. It's an act of love to God. Submission is an act of love to God. It's how we love God. It's by submitting to 
the authorities that he has placed over us. And therefore, only free men, in the generic sense of the term, free men and women, may truly submit. Submission is the privilege of the free man. A slave cannot submit. A slave must obey. It's forced. He has no choice. But a free person freely submits. I submit. Submission is costly. It goes counter every grain of our ego and of our selfishness. Because we are infected with the DNA of the one who said, I will put my throne above the stars of God and I will be like God. The desire to control, to be on top, comes from Satan. He was the first one. And Adam and Eve too. Rule over her, control him. See, that's that satanic instinct of sin at work in our members. And so it's costly. We have to put to death our flesh in order to be free to submit to God. It's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. It puts us under covenant. But it is no easy thing. And so... It says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord, out of love for God, because of God. Wives, I'm reading verse 22, submit to your own husbands, those imperfect men that will die imperfect unless you help them to grow. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. See, it's always for his sake. It's not for your husband's sake. It's for the Lord's sake. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ, in other words, in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. When my father converted at age 82, my mother said to me that afternoon, this is the reason I stayed married to this man 54 years. She paid the price. I led him to the Lord, but she paid the price. See, he's the savior of the body. My mother paid the price for the salvation of my father. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The most difficult statement I know for my wife. Imagine submitting to a man like me. Nevertheless, this is her blessing. This is her honor. This is her power. Is to be able to submit to God and for the love of God, submit to me, thereby helping me to mature, helping me out of my helpless immaturity. Husbands, love your wives. Now, what is more difficult, to love or to submit? To our flesh, it may be equally hard. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, and he made full use of it. No, 
he gave himself for her. That he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is the purpose of God for marriage, the perfection of his spouses. She, with the horrendous, irresistible power of submission, because when a woman submits to her husband, God and her are on the same team. And so any and every imperfection of that man is exposed to the grace of God. She is like a cannon pointing to his defects with love. Saying, Lord, you know Jose. I remember one time my wife came from a retreat, transformed and she grabbed my hand and she said, I know what's wrong with you. <laughs> God has spoken to her. Who can argue with that? <laughs> and she said, and you know what? It's stronger than you. You cannot overcome it alone. I'm going to grab your hand and I'm not going to let go. Until God heals you. <laughs> now that is a suitable helper. That is the kind of help I need. It was not a rebuke. It was not a complaint. It was not the long list of my sins that she could very well have enumerated because she has an ironclad memory. <laughs> and a very discerning I. <laughs> but it was an ally. I got back an ally. My best friend, my helper, my suitable helper, the one God chose for me and gave her that radar that Jesus said that can see even the speck in my eye. Although she can't see the telephone pole in hers. That's my job. Because if we use those gifts that God gives us to see the weakness of the other, then we can meet together and help one another and use that radar to bless one another and help us grow so that God's church may be, like it says here, without spot or blemish or any such thing. But we must renounce these idolatries. We must renounce our presupposition that we are superior to women or that you women can change men. Non es licit. They said in Latin, our elders, it cannot be done. Let me go back to chapter 4 to end in the glorious note of what God's purpose is. Because chapter 4, typically the first half of chapter 4 is, is properly taught by the church as what it is, a chapter on the church. Uh, this morning, your pastor was quoting from me 411, the, the fivefold or four, fourfold ministry. 
uh, of the church. But if you read chapter 5 where I started to read, it's a beautiful passage. I can't go all the way to 32. But if you do, five times in the course of chapter 5, verses 21 through 32, you will find comparisons of human marriage to the marriage of Christ and the church. We read one. There are four others in the passage. So it is valid, therefore, to take the passage about the church, the chapter 4, and to apply it to marriage. Because in the next chapter, Paul does that five times. So let me just read for you and receive the word engrafted into your hearts. I'm going to read a few verses of chapter 4, asking you to think about them in application to marriage. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. If you're married, or if you are going to be married, you have a call to marriage. This is your first call. It's lifelong, unlike the pastor, which God could call you to something else. It is exclusive. No one else is going to be the husband of this wife or the wife of this husband. And it is total, all-encompassing. Not even our bodies belong to us when we marry. But they are given by God to each other. So, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, goodbye machismo, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And I'm going to insert here the word both to apply it more clearly to marriage. One God and Father both, who is above both, and through both, and in you both. This is a rich passage for your marriage to read it and receive it together. And look at the purpose. It's the purpose your one of your favorite passages of your pastor uh, because uh, you quote it in your book and uh, you speak about it all the time. Because God gave gifts to men. In the church, he gave the five-fold ministry, right? Uh, of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of a ministry. But when we apply this to marriage, then we can keep on reading. Uh, I'm now uh, reading on verse 13. Till we both come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, a perfect human being, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is 
God's project for our marriage. Is that we would lay our life so that the other and ourselves may so grow in Christ as to represent Christ before our children, before our relatives, before those who know us, and therefore they might glorify the Father who is in heaven. May I pray, Pastor? If you would join me, you know this congregation. Your pastoral prayer would be uh, very much appreciated. Father, behold your people, your sheep, the sheep of your pasture, whom you surprised today by bringing them here and them speaking to them about them and about their parents and about their spouses and about their children. That multi-generational, beautiful work of love so marred by sin, the sin that so easily besets us. Father, we're heirs of a toxic culture, but we are inheritors of your glorious life. Let your life, Father, so dominate and predominate in our lives that the remnants of our sin may be discarded. The idols in our hearts may be dislodged, pulled by the roots. And Father, may your glorious gospel, the gospel of love, the gospel of liberty, and the gospel of peace, so fill us that we may be your new creatures, created in Christ Jesus for your good works. That, Father, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.